0: The United States Supreme Court recently announced some high-profile decisions on everything from affirmative action to student loan debt. But one case that hasn't gotten as much attention was Holland v. Brakeem. The decision involved an important piece of legislation called the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. The 1978 law created placement preferences for the adoption and fostering of Native children. It prioritizes placing Native children in Native homes. The Perkins originally made two arguments challenging this law. The first was that it shouldn't be federal law, but left up to the states. And the second was that the law created an unconstitutional racial preference. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour we're exploring the legal discrimination that Native communities have long faced here in the United States. Later in the show, Yale professor Ned Blackhawk talks about his new book, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. It looks at the central role played by indigenous people here in the United States. But first, the recent 7-2 Supreme Court decision in Holland v. Burkine. The decision rejected an argument about federal laws versus state laws, and it pushed the question of racial preferences to the future. So for now, the Indian Child Welfare Act remains intact. Here to talk about that decision is Matthew Ellen Fletcher. He's the Harry Burns Hutchins Collegiate Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. He's also a citizen of the Grand Travers Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians, and he's been appointed to the appellate court for several tribes. Matthew, welcome to Disrupted.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: You know it's been a very busy and some would say contentious season for the united states supreme court decisions across a number of key areas and one in particular that we want to talk about is a case related to the indian child welfare act before we get into that current or most recent supreme court case i wondered if you could share with our listeners what was happening in the united states at the time to even necessitate that act Back in
1: 1978, well, back in the 1970s, Congress learned that 25 to 35 percent of all American Indian children throughout, throughout the United States had been removed by state governments and church organizations, and and placed with almost entirely non-Indian families. And this was overtly done with an eye towards removing Indian kids from their home and undermining tribal nations and reservation life. It also came in the context of a lack of due process in that um, in the 1970s, very few states offered procedural protections to families when they removed kids. They would have hearings where after they removed a child, the parent would not be allowed, would not be given notice of the hearing, would not be given, would not be allowed to testify or see evidence arrayed against them. Would not be able to cross-examine witnesses. Um, and this was pretty standard in the in the United States in the nineteen seventies, and it was definitely weaponized against Indian people.
0: And so you have this act in nineteen seventy-eight, ICWA, that was put into place. What was the impact of that? You know, did it sort of right the wrongs of the history of that system and approach to Indian children, or was it more slow to turn the tide in some of those ways?
1: Well, the impacts have been pretty slow. Um, on my sense is probably for the first 10 years after the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed, most state courts did everything they could to avoid having to apply ICWA. But state courts don't run states. State legislatures do. And they began to change state law around the country to conform with ICWA, and not just for Indian children, but for everybody. So now, in a, an emergency hearing after the removal of a child, everybody gets due process and, you know, they, they get an attorney. It's almost like a criminal trial. And so they get a lot more procedural protections, but on the Indian child front, um, it's, it's been a slow process. Um, the state agencies still, um, and they acknowledge this today, but the state agencies are still troubled with, um, Prejudice and uh, ethnocentrism. They make choices to remove children from dirty homes, not because of a crime has occurred, but because of the the fear that something's going to happen to the child. Um, they're really p- penalizing poverty, is what they're doing. And so, what ICWA does is put Indian children sort of in a place where their families and their tribes can fight for them to help reunify the family. And, you know, generally preserve tribal sovereignty and tribal societies and families. Um, But the real problems remain extant, which is poverty. And that's true for everybody that's poor in the United States. And so the the progress has been really good. But most of the progress at this point is driven by the tribes themselves. The tribes are developing their child welfare systems. They're culturally appropriate. And tribes, to the extent that they have the resources, really do fund child welfare programs in a way that puts state and local governments to shame. Almost all states dramatically underfund their child welfare systems, you know, apparently because children don't vote or something. I'm not really sure what is going on with American society. Tribal nations are like an alternate universe where children matter a great deal. And tribes dedicate enormous percentages of their annual budgets to child welfare programs.
0: That notion of sovereignty and agency and being able to create the structures and systems and really communities that affirm the values of a community makes perfect sense. And yet here we are with a new Supreme Court decision related to a challenge to that sovereignty and that right to raise children in a community and an environment that is resonant for them. And so that most recent case is uh, Holland v. Burkine, which centered on the Indian Child Welfare Act, which, you know, at issue was a group of white Christian families arguing that culture may be important, but it's not the most important thing. And that by having this act in place, it infringes upon the rights of families to be able to have contact with children or adopt or foster. Talk to us about this case in terms of what was the key issue and how you think it fits into that broader piece that you talked about, about sovereignty, due process, and the ability to be protected in those ways.
1: Well, it's it's a big case, but you know, I think after several years of following this case and participating sort of on the outside of this case, it's apparent to me that it, it's a completely artificial case. Um, the state of Texas does not want to follow the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, the state of Texas is trying to privatize its child welfare system, and ICWA partially stands in the way of doing stuff like that. Um, and so they're attacking this as a states' rights federalism type argument. Um, the, the families you're talking about, the foster families who are trying to adopt Indian children, they, they're doing so over the objections of biological relatives of the children. And there were three children, um, at issue in this case, and the non-Indian families already prevailed in two of the three cases. And the third case, um, an American Indian grandmother from Minnesota prevailed. So these cases were done pretty much before the case this case was even filed by Texas and the Burquin family. So the whole thing is a sham. It is brought by um, I guess you could say movement conservatives with looking for an easy win at the Supreme Court to strike down a civil rights statute. i'm I'm at a loss as to why, this case was ever brought. I understand why Texas is doing it, because they, their upper-level government has political reasons to try to disrupt federal law. Keep in mind, Texas's Department of Health and Human Services strongly supports the Indian Child Welfare Act and takes this statute seriously. Um, so it's ironic that the really the only people in Texas who are in opposition to the Indian Child Welfare Act are the Burkines and the Attorney General and the Governor. That's pretty much it. So this is all just a sham. Um, The key issues are direct challenges to the fundamental tenets of federal Indian law. Um, They're a challenge to Congress saying, Congress, you can't pass Indian affairs statutes that states don't like. They're a 10th amendment challenge saying that states have the power to govern child welfare and federal government, you can't enact laws that interfere with state child welfare proceedings. And probably the worst thing of all is that they're, the the challengers are saying that Indian Affairs statutes discriminate on the basis of race against non-Indians. And, you know, the Constitution is clear. Congress has all the power it needs to effectuate Indian Affairs statutes, and has it's even in the text of the Constitution. There's a part of the Constitution called the Commerce Clause that says Congress can regulate commerce with Indian tribes. Um, there's the treaty power that says the United States can enter into treaties with Indian tribes and did so upwards of 400 times. And the treaties allowed the United States to, you know enter into agreements with tribes to regulate that federal tribal relationship, including that how it relates to Indian children. And as for equal protection, the equal protection uh, clause comes from the 14th Amendment, which was enacted after the Civil War, as we all know. Um, it actually excludes its application to Indian affairs. So the text of the Constitution says there's one race, at least one race, so the United States can directly regulate relations, and that's Indians. I mean, it has says it twice in the Constitution. So the nice thing about the holland versus brakeen case is that the supreme court just followed common sense and said whether you like indian child the indian child welfare act or not um that congress can do this it has the power and when it does pass laws that alter the relationship between states and indians it's perfectly constitutional and is not race discrimination
0: so you said that the court here exercised common sense And there's so many threads in this opinion, as you mentioned. It is a story of sovereignty. It is a story of federalism. It is a story of states' rights. And it's also a story of whose best interests are being served. And if you think about this This sort of process that's happening across the United States in a lot of areas of going out to find groups in order to push a bigger point. So whether it's affirmative action in college admissions or it is the right of non-Indian families to foster Indian children, that seems to be a recurring theme in this court, and at the same time, the court failed to uphold the idea that we have to protect water access and water rights for certain nations. What are you looking forward to as you think about this court? Issues that are affecting uh, sovereignty, what's the next phase of that that you're focusing on? Well,
1: that's a really big question.
0: So, so what's I the thing important. you think we should be focusing on that maybe is not getting paid yeah. attention to in this way?
1: I think it's in, it's beginning to be important in the 21st century to acknowledge that tribal nations have an important role to play in national, regional, state, local politics. Um, they are real players. Many tribes, in some instances, like in Oklahoma, are more successful at governing their lands by far than state or local governments ever were. And when you have a situation like that, it be, you begin to look at where um, the power and the money is flowing. So you mentioned the um, Arizona versus Navajo nation case, which is about the access to the Colorado river water. This is one of the most important issues in the United States right now, and certainly facing all of those states that are that depend on Colorado river water. And basically, what the court did in that case is say that the rights and the interests of states like Colorado and Arizona matter more than the water uh, the, the interests of the Navajo Nation, and there's not really much law in this case um, and and that's really important because Indian law cases are often decided by the court's understanding of national politics and public policy. So compare that to the Indian Child Welfare Act, where The the Indian Child Welfare Act fits really nicely into, um, you know, state child welfare systems and and has actually guided over the past several decades states into modernizing their child welfare systems. Um, And if you add in the reality that if, um, you know, the Supreme Court struck down this statute because evangelical Christians or conservative states wanted it to go away for political reasons or religious reasons or what have you, you're going to change Indian law in a fundamental way. And the court was reminded constantly um, in the briefing and at oral argument that if it struck down any part of the Indian Child Welfare Act, it would have to change the law of federal Indian law dramatically. And the consequences to that are potentially catastrophic quite possibly the first thing that goes away if you strike down the Indian Child Welfare Act as being somehow discriminatory uh, on, the equal, on equal protection grounds, um, is Indian country criminal jurisdiction. Since 1790, the very first Congress, um, the United States has federalized Indian country criminal jurisdiction. And in 1790, when Congress passed a law in Indian affairs, it would say things like, this law applies to Indians. It doesn't say which Indians or who an Indian is, um, because in 1790, the definition of Indian kind of was like, we know one when we see one, which is, yes, that's a problem. But it's a real thing. Um, to Since 1790, to this day, 2023, Indian country criminal jurisdiction depends on this term, Indian. And the courts have have interpreted and defined what who an Indian is, and it's so there's sort of settled law in that question that's not terribly contested, and it's been that way since 1790. So if Congress struck, or excuse me, the Supreme Court struck down ICWA or any of it because of it applied to, quote, Indians, then it would have to go after Indian country criminal jurisdiction. Crime rates in Indian country are terrible. We have missing and murdered indigenous women and relatives and others, and it is such an epidemic of violence that we need to respond to uh, through federal, tribal and state cooperation and to gut that whole system uh, would throw the whole thing in disarray and make things so much worse. And the Texas and the Brekeens were asking the Supreme court to fundamentally disrupt all of federal Indian law for cases that for, for adoptions that had already been concluded. And all we learned, this is why I say common sense, all we learned from the majority opinion in Holland versus Brad is that the Supreme Court is not completely insane on Indian affairs. So that's a good thing.
0: As we come to a close of our conversation, you know, you have been studying and writing about these issues for a very long time. You've been living through some of these notions throughout the entirety of your lifetime. Are you hopeful that moving forward in the future, the court will continue to exercise this common sense when it comes to issues of concern or direct impact for uh, people in this country? Or are you cautious about that moving forward?
1: Well, I'm always cautious. I mean, throughout the history, of the Supreme court in Indian affairs. I mean, their first major case goes all the way back to 1805. Um, tribes, tribal interests can fully expect to lose two thirds of the time. You, you, if you're representing, you're in a tribal advocate and you're in the Supreme court, you're playing defense. You're you, you can't advance the law. It's not going to go your way. You have to assume you just have to try to limit the damage. And, um, so that's that's not going to change. But I will say this, that the tribal advocacy of the last 20 years has really you know, modernized and developed to be a really formidable force. I mean, Indian countries stood up to the state of Texas and won in this case. That's never happened in the history of Indian affairs. Nothing like this has ever happened. So um, that's a really big deal. And the the tribe, tribal leadership around the country is is smart and um, forth for, has a lot of forethought and how to th- think about litigating these cases in the Supreme Court. But this is a court that's never going to be hospitable to tribal interests, and um, we can't expect to go to the court and get an advance, uh, you know, to some sort of change in the law to benefit tribal interests. All we can do is hope that they don't change anything going forward. In fact, that's pretty much the way every Indian tribe litigates in the Supreme Court, is just to ask the court to follow the law. That's it. That's all they did in the Brackeen case. That's all they do in all the cases. And um, it's when they don't follow the law and they say things like, wow, Indian law is so hard. It's because they're changing things in fundamental precepts of Indian law in order to reach an outcome that they desire to fulfill their political commitments. I hate to say it, but that's definitely the case.
0: I'm glad to to hear that they followed the law in this case and glad that you are continuing to push our understanding of the need to be ever vigilant in these cases. Matthew Ellen Fletcher is the Harry Burns Hutchins Collegiate Professor of Law at Michigan Law. He's a citizen of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. Professor Fletcher, thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: When we return, Yale professor Ned Blackhawk talks about his new book. It revisits the essential role that Native peoples have played in the evolution of modern America. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach.
1: Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing.
2: Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire Therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure.
1: Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below
2: 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health
0: Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about the long-overlooked role of Native people in United States history. Ned Blackhawk is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale. His most recent book is The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples, and the Unmaking of U.S. History. Native peoples have often been relegated to a minor role in understanding the history of the United States. But Ned's new book reminds us that the most enduring feature of U.S. history is the presence of Native people. Ned, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. The title of the book is The Rediscovery of America. Share with us why America needs to be rediscovered and why U.S. history needs to be unmade.
2: So the title is really a recognition of this proliferation of scholarship Um, This kind of generation of scholars, myself included, who have really brought new regions, populations, subjects, themes, and other um, essential elements of American historical inquiry into, I think, greater focus. And so we're living through this kind of moment of not just kind of social and public reckoning with histories of injustice across American history, uh, but also a moment in which there is a generation of scholars Community members, activists who are working to refashion, or as I say in the t- subtitle, to unmake kind of conventional paradigms of analysis. And Native history is in the process of fundamentally uh, refashioning commonplace assumptions about the American past.
0: So I want to bring us to a very basic question here. I notice in your description, you talk about Native peoples, you talk about Native Americans, and there's this big debate in, you know, sort of scholars about should we use the term Indigenous, Native American, Native peoples, what is the most inclusive term? Talk just a little bit about that. You know, do you think that that's important or does it skew us from the, the central theme of telling these stories in their completeness and their complexity and who should be telling those stories?
2: It's pretty commonplace in the field to find scholars, myself included, uh, often using terms somewhat interchangeably, um, and we all kind of understand that the term "American Indian" is not sufficiently inclusive, and uh, in Alaska Native and Native Hawaiian populations uh, are not, you know, sufficiently um, recognized within this uh, long-standing um, kind of category of social understanding. Nonetheless, American Indian and American Indian history are both familiar um, subjects. American Indians, um, you know, are essential to American law and jurisprudence. And so we're never going to leave behind entirely certain nomenclatures from the past, nor adopt sufficiently inclusive forms of understanding that are clear enough to communicate certain truths indigenous american may become the best overarching you know social category for making sense of these subjects but it might not sufficiently convey the distinctiveness of particularly continental or contiguous united states indigenous or native or indian uh, histories so um i i'm i'm mindful if we become too uh, both caught up in these kind of nomenclature uh, conversations, uh, but also if we become too dependent on one or the other, we lose sight of some of these themes or concerns.
0: I want to talk about the distinctiveness that you mentioned and also the familiarity of history. And you write in the book that you know the the country is becoming more familiar with, or at least in conversation with the centrality of African American slavery within United States history. It has not reached that same level of reckoning with Native Americans and their central role in history and how Centuries of those experiences are only now beginning to be understood, not just by scholars, but the work of activists, the work of community storytellers, oral histories that are proliferating through. Talk to us more about that, of of why you believe the United States is not yet at that point of really affirming the familiarity and distinctiveness of Native histories.
2: We are living through uh, this kind of moment of scholarly profusion. We can talk in anecdotal or kind of institutional or kind of familiar academic forms about this. We could say something that like Yale hired its first tenured Native American faculty member in 2008 and 2009. Uh, We can say that Princeton just did the same thing. Uh, Harvard, you know, very recently as well. Um, you know, Harvard was founded in 1660. So that you know, if it takes over 340 plus years to do something, uh, that's you know, obviously um, a long form of gestation. But we are living through this this period where scholarly and academic and intellectual visibility, it, you know, has has become one of the dominant features of 21st century kind of cultural studies more broadly. But at the same time, it's not happening. Um, in the kind of larger spheres that you're alluding to. And part of the trouble, we could say critical things, but we could also just say slightly more observant, I think, um, under uh, observations. One of which might be that the academy and kind of partly because of social media in the last 10 or 15 years, because of the internet, there's a kind of proliferation of knowledge in so many realms. We're We're learning more and more often about less and less, essentially. Uh, within um, so many spheres of at least historical inquiry. We have so many like new uh, fields of inquiry, including Native American history. That's one explanation. The other is, I think, a larger, slightly darker, and more kind of problematic sensibility that there is still a, a very kind of celebratory, ex- at times exceptionalistic understanding of the place of the United States in the world. And that history has to, in certain ways, help support those visions. And we have, as you mentioned, come as a field or as a kind of national academic community to really fundamentally recognize the centrality of at least slavery to the origins of American uh, historical development, if not um, later um, kind of centuries of 19th or 20th century, now 21st century US historical formation there are, there are there's still like resistances as we're, as we're aware of in the outside the um, academic world but that binary racial paradigm that is essentially um led to a kind of sense that american historical uh, experience has these kind of fundamental flaws or kind of an original sin as some scholars might call it um, that binary paradigm has become A kind of product of this heavy specialization where we can have major historians who teach at ivy league institutions write you know surveys of american history in which they dwell at length on the challenges of slavery to kind of fundamental questions of american democratic ideas and practices but don't have the concomitant commitment to seeing native history as well and so there's a kind of calcified a kind of inherited no, system of kind of knowledge production that, you know, it's been hermetically sealed and unable to recognize this kind of larger uh, heterogeneity and diversity of essentially racial injustices across American history. I call it the iron cage of erasure. That And uh, there is this kind of longstanding habit of erasing Native histories from the core narrative of American historical development. And I'm not Wanting to see Native American history simply become, you know, another thread of analysis in a very large mosaic or or tapestry of, of historical experiences. This is one of the central strands.
0: I'm also struck, Ned, that beyond the academic work, there's a personal element here. So you did make history in your appointment. The work that you do is historic, right? And that has some significance, even if we want to focus on the work. That sends all kinds of other signals, especially working within particular institutions. And I also know that you and I have both encountered this idea that when we study things relevant to our identity or experience, it's categorized as me-search and not research. Thinking about this book, this this project, this work that is so important and significant, you know, how do you navigate that, That the the personal experience and connection, and also the need to really challenge our limited notion of history or that cage that you mentioned that people Mm -hmm. want to put Native histories in? How do you balance the two?
2: We're all kind of coming to this realization that the inherited paradigms of our nation's Founding, or its development, or its kind of uh, particular distinctive commitments or truths um, have been insufficiently um, interrogated. We all kind of know that, um, and the you know, 21st century is becoming this incredibly, uh, you know, diverse and increasingly kind of contested space over the meanings of America. Um, so. I'm hopeful, as I said, um, that we can start kind of creating larger unified themes um, to kind of reckon with this diversity. One of my worries, and this is kind of from the personal observation, is that if you keep trying to do something that isn't always super recognized, it's hard, it gets frustrating, right? So um, there's a kind of sense that we shouldn't only raise concerns of uh, critiques of existing paradigms, but offer new ones as well. And so I like to think that there's a dizzying, but also dazzling diversity that's at the heart of America. And indigenous history represents that dizzying and dazzling diversity in a way that could be an invitation for engagement, for an invitation for reconsideration, an invitation to reimagine Not just our history, but obviously our current and future composition in ways that could be more uh, inclusive and expansive and perhaps less um, familiar in certain ways. So um, we, you know, we're talking a lot in this conversation about the kind of macro level uh, kind of themes. um, And it's hard to kind of even just get into the kind of nitty gritty of understanding the particular places and times that are at the heart of these subjects. Uh, But so I use like sets of anecdotes or kind of examples to kind of say, you know, pretty revelatory things that, um, for example, um, um, I talk about the Pueblo Indians of New Mexico in the introduction. Chapter one is heavily about uh, New Mexico. Uh, uh, Subsequent chapters involve the Southwest and Spanish borderlands as well. But these are the oldest continuously occupied spaces in the North American continent the villages of uh, Acoma, Taos, Laguna, Pueblo, Hopi. And no very few um, historians or historical um, national, at least uh, kind of frames of analysis, have that kind of sense of appreciation for this incredible, you know, cultural, uh, political, social continuity that is at the heart of this world. Um, and that world was heavily, heavily disrupted by the arrival of the Spanish in the 1500s. So what, you know, lessons can we take from this, you know, centuries long American story? Those are the types of questions or frames of analysis that we can kind of potentially move towards um, that might bring us uh, some of these unified um, strands from which to reimagine or rediscover or reweave American history.
0: Coming up, more from Ned Blackhawk. He'll talk about how anti-Indigenous sentiments can even be found in the Declaration of Independence. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten.
2: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
0: Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalilah Brown-Dean. Today we're looking at the history of indigenous people and the critical role that they've played in shaping United States history. We're joined now by Yale professor, Ned Blackhawk. He's author of a new book called The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History. I asked Ned about the role that native people played in shaping the Revolutionary War.
2: In the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, which ends in 1763 with the Treaty of Paris, in which the English or British crown um, gained sovereignty over the former French Empire and North America called new France, the interior world of British North America expands dramatically in kind of political and territorial senses, but contracts in other ways and the british are unable to really bring their sovereign authority into the former domains of the french empire though they want to Um, and indigenous populations uh, particularly during a two-year period known as pontiac's war are so um, organized militarily present and defiant that the british have to come to terms with them and in that coming to terms with them the British begin trading with them, recognizing their um, sovereignty, essentially uh, offering them diplomatic and other forms of mediative um, practices that the French had been long known for. And this really upsets the British settlers in these areas who are anticipating a greater future for themselves. And so these British settlers who are at the heart of this settler uprising that I'm describing develop very early on a deeply anti monarchical sensibility. They really come to resent British forces, British uh, military and political leaders, even the legislative leaders of the colony like Pennsylvania itself where Benjamin Franklin holds a seat In at the end of the Seven Years' War. They develop an anti-Indigenous ideology. We might call it Indian hating. We might call it racial hatred. We might call it many things but it manifests itself in very familiar forms of racial violence, massacres, attacks, um, vilifications. And that ideology predates the Stamp Act of eighteen seventeen sixty five 1765, and more kind of familiar beginnings, the Boston Massacre of 1770. This ideology predates these um, more recognized originary points of the revolutionary struggle. So that's kind of one claim. The claim that I don't draw as much attention to as I'm trying to now in some of my more kind of current work, is that term or that, that ideology finds its way into the declaration, which concludes again, with a set of, it concludes its set of grievances against the British crown in July of 1776 with concerns that the English crown has incited merciless Indian savages to make war against our frontier communities. And these terms, merciless Indian savages and frontier communities, all have their origins not in the seaports, not among the Virginia gentry, not in merchant economies in Boston or New York. These are backcountry concerns. And so those backcountry concerns, which are there right as the French are leaving Detroit in December of 1760. 1760, they're starting to um which is their last military essentially departure or political departure. Um, this these sentiments predate what we think of are the origins of the revolution, yet they find their way into the you know, into the founding documents of our country. And so there's never been a really sufficient, I, I feel, kind of reckoning with the centrality of these communities and their and the you know, hostility between settlers and native peoples. Which seems to be at the heart of this era, but somehow we've lost sight of that to our detriment in broader narratives of American history.
0: I'm fascinated by the ways that these centralized themes, these notions of savagery, of who is beyond the scope of inclusion in a community, how that gets replicated, not just in the Declaration, but in some of the other policies and practices of the United States government, whether it is the understanding that you know, Indian Americans are beyond the scope of citizenship and therefore, in a case of John Elk, are ineligible to vote no matter, you know, if right. he denounces affiliation and wants to be a part of this community, the Supreme Court saying he never can be because he was never intended to be. We see that coming through, Ned, in some of the assimilation programs, the ways that schools, you know, I grew up in Virginia and that the legacy of how schools were created to, quote unquote, civilize and assimilate Indian children. We're getting that with the Indian Child Welfare Act and Supreme Court decisions, this long legacy of that. What's the broader impact of those kinds of approaches to assimilation, uh, our notions of whiteness, and how it really sets in motion the long history for Native peoples in the United States, this idea that people need to be civilized and assimilated. And even when they try to, however that is defined, there is Mm -hmm. still this barrier.
2: Yeah, race is a really uh, dominant feature of American historical formation. I think we all kind of understand that. And I really uh, was struck in my um, post-1787 chapter on the early republic to learn um, that the term white is legislated by the first US Congress in 1790 in its Naturalization Act and subsequently in 1792 in its Militia Act. And so had we known that white as a racial category was being used for essentially the right to become a naturalized citizen and thus to be able to carry arms in defense of the uh, country, had we known that that's a truth that was in the constitution, we would have worked as a nation to unravel that, right? Um, but we we have insufficiently learned that um, there is a whole body of racial law codified by the first American Congress and there, many thereafter that perpetuates these kind of understandings of civilization and savagery. Because savagery is not just, as you indicated, a form of humanization; It's a recognition of selfhood and kind of um, a kind of. A sense of kind of legal authorization to do things to these people and so the declaration in many ways incites settlers to kill indians uh to have the legal justification to do that but it also in the same pattern is telling uh, itself and its national community that the english crown has done something so um dramatically un- unacceptable that it has a national responsibility to both become independent and eventually, as you're indicating, do something with these peoples who are savage and and so the United States has adopted, you know, assimilation-style policies towards Native peoples, you know, since its founding and really up until the late 20th century. So we're still struggling with this, and I don't think there's really any easy answers other than obviously beginning to learn these subjects in clearer form. But how do we, you know, make clearer understandings of other forms of diversity, intelligible, and not antagonistic. That's the kind of worry I have with either the multicultural paradigm or the binary black-white racial paradigm, is that they antagonize social communities for inclusion within this structure narrative in ways that is not like historically accurate or even contemporarily helpful. And so we perhaps can come to a space where we recognize the centrality of all these different forms of diversity. And legally pluralistic and socially heterogeneous and religiously different. And so we can kind of come to a slightly more perhaps um, capacious understanding of what constitutes the American body politic.
0: And your book traces all of these historical moments, puts it into conversation, not just into context with the American project, if you will. But what I also appreciate is that the book moves us through history, but also thinks about the present situation and present experiences of Native peoples. Can you give us an example of how uh, Native activism in this current moment or in the 20th century is in conversation with those historical trajectories that you talk about so that our listeners get a sense of, yes, history is living, but mm-hmm. communities are still charting forth this path.
2: In the early 20th century, sets of American Indian activists and intellectuals formed the first um, national um, political advocacy group or association for Native peoples called the Society of American Indians in 1911, two years after the formation of the NAACP, Um And that society, which had a 13-year existence, uh, did remarkable things. And many of its founders, if not all of them, if I'm thinking correctly, had experience within those boarding schools that you referenced. Um, And their primary concern was changing those schools, which many did. And several had gone to Hampton in Virginia um, and experienced the kind of vocational training emphases that uh, that institution was famous for. Um, And many took strong issue with the, essentially the pedagogy of assimilation through corporal disciplinary uh, punishment. And so they tried to do a whole range of things and eventually achieved many outcomes, some of which were really heavily undercut by the arrival of the Great Depression in which then a set of new kind of legal and political uh, priorities emerged that subsequently shifted many of their attentions to national level reforming. Um, so it's a kind of inter- really, I think, um, kind of a beautiful stream of activist ideas and projects and outcomes that include the formation of uh, Native American preparatory academies, essentially, well, well be uh, before uh, most would think of their existence. Uh, it includes uh, lobby, legislative advocacy before Congress. It includes um, uh, sets of reservation-based um, resource Center creations for Native peoples to learn how to navigate certain structures of American life. It's a whole kind of stream of kind of flowing activities. The Depression and the Second World War radically changed that kind of milieu. And then the post-war era became characterized again by more assimilative designs by the federal government to um, disband Native communities and urbanize its uh, citizens. And in the aftermath of those policies in the late 60s and early 70s, Native activists, again, kind of are at the forefront of a real national redefinition. And even though the legislation from the New Deal era is the most consequential of the periods of American Indian uh, kind of legal formation, uh, it's the early 70s where the contemporary era known as self-determination is really uh, uh founded, and that foundation has all these different forms. And so I write about you know artists and activists and takeovers, and also kind of reservation-based uh, political leaders like Ada Deer, who um essentially are able to re-form federal policy through sets of uh, new lawmaking possibilities that none would have predicted. So these kind of unprecedented um, era of unanticipated. Developments brings what I call the American Indian Sovereignty Movement into its kind of uh, formative um, stages that then lays the foundations for subsequent expansions of tribal sovereign authority. These Essentially, the tribes become far more capable governments because of these new legislative and administrative commitments. That, that the Indian Self-Determination Act of 1975 really codifies. And so the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978, which was just uh, upheld, uh, that law is part of this kind of era of modern Indian sovereignty movement achievements um, that lays the foundations for our kind of contemporary world in which we can see visibly tribal communities much more active and present than um, our parents or our grandparents would have ever um, imagined possible. Um, the tribes here in Connecticut, as you know, um, are very powerful and politically visible, the two federally recognized tribes in particular. Um, tribes across the country are subsidizing you know, partnerships with universities and building museums and cultural centers and doing all kinds of kind of contemporary forms of governance that many would have a hard time kind of understanding outside of a historical context.
0: The beauty of history that you describe as the dizzying and dazzling aspects. Is that even in the face of this tremendous inhumanity, these attempts to define communities, communities have worked to define themselves for themselves and to show how that history is so important and resonant today? Ned Blackhawk is professor of history and American studies at Yale University. His most recent book is The Rediscovery of America Native Peoples and the Unmaking of US History. Thank you so much, Ned.
2: It has been my pleasure.
0: Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tolarski. Special thanks to our interns, Carol Chin and Stacey Addo. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. And if you love an episode, please remember to leave us a comment. I'm Kalilah Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.